0: Given all those barriers that exist currently and have existed historically, what is it about you that has you succeed in this space?
1: There's some things that are about me and some things that are about, you know, the context within which I found myself. And Mm -hmm. there's some part of it that's really just luck and being in the right place at the right time. So about me, I guess I would say for better and for worse i have very little respect for people telling me things are impossible okay. or for like for what is reasonable and what is unreasonable as far as what to take on i mean <laughs> i think i've both gotten myself in over my head and into some like amazing scenarios because i've just ignored what people said was like too hard or ignored the sort of the status quo mm-hmm.
0: Get ready to buckle up because on the She's Got Drive podcast, you remember that your brilliance is your birthright. Welcome back to another episode of She's Got Drive. It is the beginning of a special week in New York called Climate Week. And Climate Week NYC is literally the largest annual climate event of its kind. It brings together 400 different events and activities across the city of New York, in person, hybrid and online. And each year it contains business leaders and political change makers, local decision makers, civil society, representatives of all ages and backgrounds. And it covers a cross section of industries and that really looks at the impact of climate and the crisis that we're in and and what's the things that we need to do to drive purposeful action. So that's what's happening this week. I am here in New York as I record this, and it's relevant for my guests that I decided to dig out of the vault in this week's episode is a rewind episode. I shared with you about being at Climbing We this week. I've just finished an event today where I moderated an, an, at an event. And it's just inspiring the work that people are doing, the dedication that they are. And it's also exciting for me because I really feel like I'm following it through on my purpose. Now, you know, if you're a listener or she's got drive for a while, that visioning your life, fulfilling your noble purpose is really what I'm about. I'm about you living your life fully and living it in its full self, in its full self-expression. And how you did, one of the ways in that you, you can do that is really understanding or noticing when you are in the right place or when you're in a place where you feel like you can really make a difference and really be in a contribution. So I'll put the link in the show notes. There's like so many events that are happening, but also just pay attention to what shows up in the future years, but we all have a place in this and we all have so much that we need to do. So there we are. So what I decided to do, I decided to feature one of my earlier guests on the show um, because it's a great interview and because Dr. Jana Elizabeth Johnson, who's a marine biologist, is really out here doing things. (laughs) You know, she, she's a policy expert. She's a writer. She's originally from Brooklyn and she's the co-founder of a non-profit think tank, Urban Ocean Lab, and the co-founder of the Climate Initiative, the All We Can Save Project. And she's the co-creator of the podcast, How to Save a Planet. Now, this is, not reflected in the um, interview that I'm sharing with you because it's, I've taken it out of the vault, but it's, uh, it shares about her journey to being a, a marine biologist and how important that, that is to her. You'll find her at the nexus of science, policy and communication. And she's focused on climate solutions. She's really phenomenal. So I wanted her to be featured this week, given it's climate week. And I'm going to see if I can reach out to her to get a follow-up. She's launching this a concept called the Climate Action Venn Diagram. And you can find that online where she talks about the intersection of what brings you joy, sources of satisfaction and delight, what work needs to be do, done, climate and justice solutions, what are you good at, your skills, resources and networks and in the centre of that is your climate action and I love that Venn diagram. Okay, over to Ayana. Ayana, thank you so much for being with me on She's Got Drive. I'm, My pleasure. I'm so excited, I was saying how excited I am to kind of talk to you about your work and how you got into your work, because it's such a um, a rarity to find a black woman holding, uh, operating in your space and doing the work that you're doing. So I was so happy to to find you through a, through a mutual friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would love to see change is how rare I am. I mean, right. I think that's a problem because not just because i care about diversity as a concept but because without diverse experts in all these fields we're missing out on so many different perspectives um and approaches to different solutions so we're just losing a lot of opportunities to fix things if we don't have a full spectrum of backgrounds and types of brains and minds working on this this important stuff
0: right well um Let's see how you got into it, because um, mm-hmm. and explain. Let's explain to our listeners what do what what does a um, marine biologist actually do, and your policy work. Um, mm-hmm. What does that entail? And then you can share with us how you how you got into this area of work, because that might help us find where other talents can can come into the same yeah. space too.
1: So. I had an experience when I was really young with the ocean that just made me fall completely in love with it. And I think most people who go into marine biology or conservation have that. In fact, the same could be said for people who do forest conservation or or grasslands or birds. There's this moment where you are just in awe of nature. And for me, when I was five, my family took me to the Florida Keys to teach me how to swim. And so we stayed in this little bed and breakfast with a big pool. Um, at least it was big to me at the age of five. And I learned to swim and I just thought being in the water was the coolest thing I could imagine. Right. Um, and going on a glass bottom boat ride and seeing a coral reef for the first time and all of the different colors of fish swimming around and um this was back in the day when you would feed the fish. So we were feeding the fish cheese popcorn, which is (laughs) not a healthy snack for a coral reef fish in retrospect. And I'm super allergic to cheese. So I'm like covered in like cheese dust up to my elbow and just breaking out in hives and not even noticing because I was so enamored with seeing this underwater world. Um, and, and going to the aquarium there and holding a starfish and a sea urchin for the first time and feeling their crazy thousands of tube feet crawl across my hand. And I just, there are these amazing aliens that we get to learn about and interact with, Mm -hmm. um, on our own planet. And it just, I had never thought about, um, I think it was the first experience where I realized how much I didn't know. Okay. Um, And how magical it could be to learn more about it. And then, of course, as I got older, I learned how much at risk the ocean and these ecosystems were because of all of the full spectrum of things that humans are doing to our planet. From overfishing to bulldozing coastal habitats for development to pollution, um, both chemical um, and plastic pollution and and sewage. um, And the interaction between the climate and the ocean and how changes in the climate um, have really big impacts on the sea. So I started to put all these pieces together and, and realized that there was an opportunity to be a part of a solution and not just in a way that I would learn everything I could on the science, but I would, I've really focused my career on thinking about how ocean conservation affects people, or the lack of conservation affects people, and how we can come up with solutions that really support coastal communities and coastal cultures. Because if this were just about the science, that wouldn't be enough for me Mm -hmm. to get excited about doing my work every day. For me, it's really about, okay, we need to get this right, ocean conservation right, because people really depend on it for food securities, for the coastal cultures across the Caribbean and the Pacific and everywhere that we really care about. Um, If we don't have fish to take your grandkids fishing to catch or have a fish fry, um, you lose so much about who we are as humans. So um, there's a lot of different reasons why I do what I do. But um, for me, it's really, there's a a strong connection between ocean conservation and social justice. Um, Thinking about who gets screwed, when when we have all these ocean problems from pollution to overfishing to right. climate impacts and the storms that come. So um that's kind of the intersection where I'm really excited to be working now and and, and to be helping come up with ways that
0: we can make things better. We're gonna come back to this um the social impact and um on communities uh later uh, because as I was I was sharing with you earlier that it, it, given what's happened this year with the hurricanes, mm-hmm. um, there's we know there's will be people listening who have who have people who have been impacted, and I've been personally impacted yeah. with my family in Dominica and and what they're living with. So there's some heightened awareness around around just around that for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm curious about how so from the from the age of five and have and that's where it it got ignited. But mm-hmm. how did how did you translate that into actually getting into the work? You know, what was your trajectory, and um, and how does it how do you keep keep that alive when you're living in Brooklyn? <laughs> um, well, it started when I was living in Brooklyn,
1: so I don't see that as a challenge. I think it's it's really confusing to most people. I'm like, what is a marine biologist doing in Brooklyn? <laughs> um, well, the truth is, I'm not actually doing that much biology at the moment. I'm doing much more strategy and policy and communications around ocean issues, although there is a huge amount of marine research that's going on in New York waters. There are whales that have come back to New York Harbor. There are seahorses living on piers in the Hudson River. Um, There are enormous schools of fish, and water quality is actually better in New York than it's been in about 100 years because of all the really boring policy work that's been done to, to reduce the amount of um, polluted water that's discharged. So, New York is a perfectly good place to be a marine biologist. We have over 500 miles of coastline in New York City. So, um, uh, that's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, most people don't think of New York as a coastal city, even <laughs> most New Yorkers, but it really is. And so, I think there's this opportunity to move the conversation beyond tropical islands mm-hmm. to coastal cities all over the world. And that's one of the things I'm really excited to be doing more work on in the future. But as to how I got here, um, it looks like a straight line in hindsight, um, but it really wasn't at the time. So after my initial love affair with the ocean and the beach and the reefs, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, by the age of 10, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. I had, was learning about the civil rights movement. I wanted to be the lawyer that got the next Martin Luther King out of jail. That was my goal. Right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the next Martin Luther King. I wanted to make sure that whoever that was would be protected and able to be out there doing their work. Mm-hmm. So I was fascinated by law at that age. And then I, um, I fell in love with the mountains. I went and spent a summer backpacking and living in the woods and colorado on the continental divide trail um and i mean mountains and forests and trees are are magical in a whole other way but in that same way where you realize how big the planet is and how small you are Mm -hmm. um and yet how fragile these ecosystems are when you put together the impacts of all the people on the planet so i wanted to become a park ranger because i thought your job would just be to like go hiking (laughs) all the time (laughs) um so by 15, that was my goal. And then in college, I, um, I majored in environmental science and public policy, and I thought um, it was really interesting to think about the interconnectedness of all these academic disciplines if we're going to come up with actual solutions for co- conservation. Mm-hmm. So um, my classes involved atmospheric chemistry and geology and ecology um, and micro and macroeconomics and environmental law and policy, um, government, the whole spectrum of things that it, I, I thought that were needed in order to come up with truly integrated um, and effective solutions. Um, and I studied abroad in the Caribbean. I went to Turks and Caicos for about three months with the school for field studies program that down there mm-hmm. and, that was the first time I really understood what ocean conservation would entail. I was living in a fishing community in South Caicos, just a few hundred people, and there was a marine protected area um, right offshore. And so I participated in research studying the conch that were living in that inside and outside of that protected area to see if that protection was actually supporting the local fishery and the and having benefits for the community. And so it was a really interesting case study in um, how does conservation really work? How do you design um, effective policies? And being able to both be in the water, doing the science, counting the conch, looking at the habitats, and also talking to fishermen and understanding the fishing piece of the puzzle and the economics of it was a real um eye opening moment for me when i thought oh i this is something i could spend my career on because it's this crazy complicated but really important puzzle to solve mm. so that was um what got me really excited about it. And then just to make sure I, I came back to, um, to Harvard and I took a, a class at the law school environmental law. And I thought, no, no, I was right. That, <laughs> that other thing is more interesting to me right now. Although I have ended up doing a whole bunch of legal work as part of the ocean conservation efforts that I've been a part of because making sure things are legally codified, um, and not just ideas is obviously an important part of that puzzle.
0: Right, so you've managed to bring that in. Yeah. Um, and so y- you graduated um, from Harvard, mm-hmm. and then and then what did you do? You did this placement. This, I ended this- up
1: at the Environmental Protection Agency for a few years right out of college, um, working in D.C. in what's kind of the internal think tank of the organization. So it works with all of the different major offices helping to design, um, effective regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned a lot about the role that science plays in policymaking and how scientists can better engage in that process and, and how regulations are actually developed, like the, uh, sort of like how the sausage gets made, as they say all too <laughs> often in DC, um, the sort of messy and intricate behind-the-scenes working of, of that, and so while I didn't really love working for the EPA under the Bush administration when there was so much happening to to take down environmental protections, right. Right. Um, it was a, it was a pretty frustrating experience to watch. I learned so much being on the inside um, and seeing. Um, through how the process works and how I could potentially influence it from the outside and help others plug into it effectively
0: and now you're also having that similar there's a similar experience obviously with the current administration and yeah wh- what impact are you you've experienced in your own work given the shifting context you know so you mm-hmm. you've you had a period of time where your work was being done um, under the Obama administration and then this administration you know how does it impact your day-to-day given the, your your work around policy and strategy
1: yeah it doesn't really impact my day-to-day okay. um that may be in part by design so mm-hmm. under the Obama administration I spent one year working um for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration on ocean policy. So Obama had signed into law by executive order the national ocean policy. And that was an effort to get all 27 or so federal agencies. There are over 20 federal agencies that have some jurisdiction over the ocean. And so wow. the goal of this was to get all of those agencies on the same page yes. about um, and coordinated about how to use and manage and conserve and protect um, the ocean. And so that was a fascinating experience being part of the team that really helped to sync up both internally within NOAA and externally amongst all of these different organizations and looking at, um, uh, comments from outside scientists in the community about what that could look like. Um, it's really complicated. And so, um, And then my work for the next um, five years was outside of um, the U.S. So I wasn't really engaged in U.S. um, ocean policy. So when I think about how my work is affected, I definitely worry about all of those efforts of hundreds if not thousands of people to create a plan to work together on managing the ocean sustainably. I worry about you know, how that will get brushed aside or, or torn apart. Because um, that's really hard to get people on the same page with a plan. Um, and that happened um, under the Obama administration. So I worry about that getting undone, but my work right now um, is not at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working more with NGOs, um, many of whom do um, international work. Mm -hmm. primarily, or more um, public communication campaigns. So it's less about impacting federal policy in the U.S. than it is about um, shifting the narrative and the conversation and thinking about policy internationally, whether that's the seafood supply chain globally or plastic pollution um, uh, efforts going through the United Nations. So um, so I'm a little bit insulated in my day-to-day mm-hmm. from, um, from U.S. federal um, policy at this moment, um, and I'm hoping to do more work with states and with coastal cities because there's a, a lot of really interesting and important work in, in policy happening at those levels right now, right. Um, even where there's a lack of that at the national level.
0: So thank you for that the the I'm thinking about um you you in those different contexts as you were sharing them mm-hmm. and uh, and imagining what the rooms the people in the who the people in the room could be <laughs> and mm-hmm. coming back to your initial comment about really wanting to have more more people who are who look like you in the room mm-hmm. how does what does it feel you know t- can you can you share what the how many other people of color are actually in this space and working in this space and doing the work that you're doing you know because and then what does it feel like when you're in those rooms and do do you feel like you're representing (laughs) (laughs) communities you know a voice for on different multiple levels of in that in terms of the, the the needs in terms of the work that you're doing but also as a as a of the black woman as a woman of color too you know like yeah help us understand a bit more about that
1: i keep a list of the amazing women of color in my field and it is a very short list um so or or the people of color um in particular obviously um in, in the u.s i should specify Um, obviously there's amazing work being done by people Mm -hmm. of color and women all around the world in their communities. Um, and I'm always looking to add to that list. Um, and there's brilliant work being done all over the world by people of color, um, in their communities whom I haven't yet met, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. Um, but in the U S it's a pretty small group. Um, so to give a little. Concrete context for that. There's a group um, called Green 2.0 that works specifically on diversifying the environmental field. Um, and according to their last report, they surveyed all the um, environmental NGOs. There were about 14% of the staff in environmental groups are people of color. Mm. Um, and that's compared to 30-something percent um, that is the population of the U.S. Um, and about 5% or less of board seats on these ocean NGOs, or sorry, environmental NGOs are people of color. Yeah. So there's a lot of underrepresentation. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, I would say um, women are very well represented Um in in leadership positions, as well as the staff level in environmental conservation. Um, The head of the Ocean Conservancy is a woman, as well as the vice president for communications and for policy. Um, The head of the Global Ocean Program for um, the Nature Conservancy, and many people on her team are women. Mm. There are some amazing women leaders um, at Pew and at Oceana, um, and at the Lonely Whale Foundation. Um, and there so there there are women not just staffing, but leading um, ocean in, uh, conservation work. Um, and that's really great to see. Um, so and, and the same is actually true on the philanthropy side of things um, as far as people. The, just helping to decide where where the money goes, right. who's getting funded to do this work. Um, so that's a really positive thing to see. The Wade Institute, for example, where I used to be executive director, the new executive director is also a woman. Um, and women of color are the majority, or were, <laughs> mm-hmm. when I was running it, the majority of the people on staff. I think they've hired some more folks. Um, so there's, um, there's a, a lot of... Um, really good um, gender diversity happening in the field, okay. but racial diversity is still um,
0: way behind.
1: Really, really lagging. Um, and there's—I want to highlight one of the efforts at changing that, and that's um, the Ray Conservation Fellowship, which um, aims to um, place. People of color in fellowships, one year fellowships that are actually paid um, in major Mm. conservation groups um, from Greenpeace to Ocean Conservancy to NRDC. Um, NRDC's ocean program is also run by women. Um, So there's there's this very um, targeted effort to bring in people who have finished their undergraduate degrees, people of color, put them into positions in these organizations, train them and try to support them so that they can um, stay in this field. And I um, I volunteered as a mentor for the, the fellows in that group to try to encourage them. Um, because it's really hard to find your way. It's not um, a really obvious and well-traveled career path. Um, when I was graduating college and went to the... Um, Sort of guidance, counseling, career um, placement office. Mm-hmm. They had no real advice for me. This was not something that they could guide me on. I had to, you know, find my first job without any, um, you know, specific guidance. There, it was like very fortuitous that the the professor from my environmental economics class knew someone at the EPA who was doing interviews and and that kind of thing. Mm. So I'm. Every time a young person of color asks me for advice, I am happy to hop up on the phone, buy them coffee or lunch and and sit down and help them think about what a career in this field might look like and how they could best align their interests and skills with an organization and a job. And I think one of the really big hurdles, um, towards changing these numbers is not that the just that the career path isn't obvious and just that people aren't seeing themselves represented it's also that a lot of this work is unpaid a lot of the Mm -hmm. internships um and entry-level opportunities um and like ways to get your foot in the door are are really tough financially whether that's um you know going to graduate school or taking an internship. Um, and that's something that really needs to change if we want to see um, the balance of diversity change.
0: Yeah, it does, yeah. So yeah. I pay my interns and everyone should pay their interns. Yeah, the, yeah it's addressing the economic challenge yeah. in and of itself can have an impact. So then what is it, given all those barriers that exist, Currently and have exist existed um, historically. What is it about you that has you b- succeed in this space? It's a question I always because because he, here you are. The environment is it is what it is right now in terms of uh, the the area that you're working in. So what is it about you?
1: I think there's some things that are about me and some things that are about you know, the context within which I found myself. And Mm -hmm. there's some part of it that's really just luck and being in the right place at the right time. So about me, I guess I would say for better and for worse, I have very little respect for like people telling me things are impossible or for like, for what is reasonable and what is unreasonable as far as what to take on. (laughs) I mean, I think. I've both gotten myself in over my head and into some like amazing scenarios because I've just ignored what people said was like too hard or ignored, you know, what was the sort of the status quo. Mm-hmm. And 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 I mean that when I say for better and for worse. I mean my um PhD research, I definitely made way harder than it had to be because I was doing research on the island of Curaçao and thought, oh, what if I repeat all of this research on the island of Bonaire, (laughs) which nobody asked me to do. And like the six months before my dissertation was due, but I thought, oh, this I need to have a comparative study. And not only should I interview all the fishermen on both islands, I should interview all the scuba divers to be able to compare their perspectives and wouldn't it be really great if I read every single paper that has ever been written about fishing (laughs) on coral reefs and, and do an analysis of them to see where there's a need for more research and and what are the gaps. So it's just kind of this, I, I guess another way to put it would be just naivete has a really important role to play. Like not even knowing what you, what the the theoretical shoulds and shouldn'ts are. Mm -hmm. Um, that definitely um, played a big role and my parents certainly formed me in a way that encouraged me to take on big challenges and challenge the status quo, but also think really hard about how I could give back and, and all the opportunities that I've been given um, are, are a responsibility to figure out how to give back to, um, to the, the communities that I've worked in that need support to, um, to the field that I'm a part of to mentoring the next generation mm. they really encouraged me to pursue science even though it wasn't the easiest thing for me it it definitely is a field um, uh, sort of like an academic topic that took more effort right. um, but I've always loved um, so I mean the list is long for reasons that I um, ended up doing what I'm doing but some mix of naivete and luck and, and really wanting to be part of the solutions and really been being drawn to these interdisciplinary challenges and, and having this um, personal um, connection to the ocean, as well as um, just like you, I have my dad's from Jamaica. So I have um, a family connection to the Caribbean and to um, ocean cultures. Um, And then, and really seeing an opportunity to, to use um, all the opportunities that I've been given to be part of um, a really needed push to turn some of these ocean conservation challenges into solutions.
0: Yeah, well, so so it's what I'm as you were sharing, i was thinking, oh, so then what is it going to take to like really have a real breakthrough in the number of um, young. Yeah. people of color like really coming through and really seeing you know the lack of
1: I think it has to be deliberate so this kind of thing like the diversity within this field is not going to shift you know just naturally no. um, I think another piece that people don't know is that you can actually make good money in ocean conservation like that never occurs to people and when you're the first mm. generation and your family going to college Um, or graduate school, you feel a responsibility to your family and to your community to make good on that opportunity, you know, to become a doctor or a lawyer or a CEO or, um, you know, a computer programmer or whatever you can already understand how to monetize. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't see a lot of, you know, first generation college students going into art history, for example. Right. Um, that is considered, you know, uh, a career or a major of privilege. Um, and I think conservation is seen in that same light, but I mean, CEOs at these environmental groups are making mid six figures. I mean, this is not a volunteer work position. So, wow. um, or depending on the size of it. Yeah, of course. Um, so, but like you're, you're making over a hundred thousand dollars. And so I think, um, a lot of people don't, know that. Like if you knew <laughs> that you could make um, make a living doing this work and have it be work that you feel good about and that's helping make the world a better place, I think that's one of the myths I try to dispel awesome. immediately when I'm talking to people who are interested in the career but are nervous about it. And that PhDs in science, you don't have to take out loans. Most people Get um, you know a fellowship or a research assistant position or a teaching assistant position um, that includes having your tuition um, and fees covered. So
0: Those it's are very different, changes, actually.
1: right? It's like super different than getting an MBA or going to medical school or law school and graduating with like a huge mountain of debt that right. you spend the next decade digging out of, and that honestly like leads people to make some very questionable career decisions because they need to just pay off their loans exactly. and as opposed to doing either what they are most passionate about or or would be you know the best for for the world um and so yeah i was able to just with fellowships graduate without any debt and a phd and basically all science fields are like wow. that. And that's another like bizarrely well-kept secret. It totally PhDs is. in science are free. Like go get one. It takes a while, but like it's fascinating. And you can do important work while you're doing it. Master's degrees are a little bit more of a mixed bag, but even even um, there's a similarity there too.
0: That is critical information. to (laughs) Seriously. You don't have to be poor to help save the planet. You don't, because there is so (laughs) much, isn't there? There is a kind of a a connection in the myths when people are doing work for good, that it has Mm -hmm. to be that you have to be like struggling. You know, that's, that that is, it's a middle, the vision of someone who's a conservationist, isn't someone (laughs) who's well dressed you know there's a kind of there's lots of like gosh do you know when I, mean? I when I go
1: speak at schools I make like a double extra effort to dress well just to prove that I'm like you don't have to be unfashionable and lame to do environmental work right. you really I probably amazing. overcompensate <laughs> I'm like trying to impress <laughs> these young people and pretend to be cool it's
0: pretty funny. Yeah, um, I love this. I love this because, and I think that the the notion of cool, of course, as people pursue, pursue when you're young and making choices about where, which direction your career goes. As you mm-hmm. said, when you're first generation and when you're there's so many, it's so complex, isn't it? That that decision that you're making at such a young age.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and then and then if we don't have enough models, when we don't have enough people in our environment in our lives. Who we can see are modeling and, and doing what they're doing those things, even if you have a passion for it, you, all the other pressures mm-hmm. can just get in the way. So Yeah. And that's, that's an one is. of the
1: reasons that I've sort of reluctantly at first become a more visible spokesperson on mm-hmm. about the work that I do, because I think it is so important. I mean, I have heard, you know, stories of young people saying, Oh, I didn't know I could be a marine biologist that see, Iana's doing it like that's interesting right. so just having my face out there um I didn't initially see the value of but now I've I've, I've much more embraced that role um if, if that's helpful it's I'm fine to- with it. yeah it's
0: totally helpful I mean one of the the, the 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 um goals for me in doing she's got drive is there are so many Really great work that's been doing by by women of colour by black women that is just totally hidden, you know, the kind of the notion mm-hmm. of the hidden figures. It's mm-hmm. like, how do I when I found out about you, I thought, hold on a minute, I've never heard what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so it just in someone listening to you, sharing your story, um, for them they may think, well, you know, I'm x am of years, I maybe it's not for me. But then they've got, I've got children. I've got a son who loves, he wants to be a scientist, who loves mm-hmm. biology, who loves, and it's like, well, actually. We need all we, the help we can get. Right, the fact <laughs> that we don't live in, we live in a, in an urban environment. We don't think about that, you know? But when we, are, mm-hmm. when we are at the coast, when we're in certain spaces, he's like, his condition, for example, for being on vacation, he goes, is it a place where I can find insects and and wildlife, and as long oh as I can God, find I love some that of that, question? Can I have That's some amazing. of that? That's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we can combine the. So you know, But so, are there bugs? With, will there yeah, be bugs there? Will there will there be bugs That's there? So great. Can we find the? Can we find as a, a kid who like
1: <laughs> played with worms and bugs in my backyard in Brooklyn, probably in like totally toxic like soil
0: yeah Um, that's
1: right i I love bugs i mean how interesting are bugs he yeah
0: (laughs) he loves it when we were in dominica i've got a wonderful photo of him like holding a gecko you know and it's Mm. it's, like finding the different geckos all around the place i think the the challenge with
1: um kids and nature right now is a lot of kids don't get to have those experiences for one uh, which is really unfortunate because we're losing our connection with nature and our respect for it and our wonder and appreciation for it, which leads to all of this destruction that we're seeing. But also, um, there's kids who are just getting exposed to nature now have a completely different understanding of what nature is than you or I got to see growing up. Right. I mean, even in the last 30 years, our planet has changed so much that kids now get excited to see a bug because there aren't as many bugs left. Right. Or they get excited to see a fish because there like, aren't as many fish left. And so they have a completely different baseline for how abundant and magnificent and overwhelmingly beautiful nature is because there's just so much less of everything from species extinctions to just like reduced population sizes to just ecosystems that don't look like they used to. So and cool. so coral reefs, if we keep the way we're going, coral reefs, as we envision them, as we picture them, the iconic coral reef, those will be gone in 50 years wow. because of climate change if, if we don't seriously change our ways. So we're at a really big inflection point. And we need the next generation to be part of the solution, but they don't even know from personal experience what these things should look like. I've never, even in my life, seen a truly healthy coral reef because most of my work has been in the Caribbean where coral reefs were degraded decades and decades ago before I started diving and before I became a scientist. So this is this phenomenon called shifted baselines. And so we're seeing this shifted baseline, which has impacts on policy we just have basically like lowered expectations lowered standards and so if policies are around recovery and restoring nature are setting our standards too low then then we're really missing an opportunity yeah. to have like the splendor um, and the abundance and and all of that of course supports um, economies from forestry to fishing jobs to um, tourism. I mean, you can't have tourism on polluted beaches when the water is not safe to swim in and, right. and you're importing Alaskan pollock to Caribbean islands because they don't have mm-hmm. enough fish left to serve their customers. Nice. Um, I mean, it's, we're yeah, in a very bizarre scenario. Yeah. Um, and so I worry about the next generation coming up, but they're also just so inspired and creative and multi-talented that it also gives me a lot of hope. I mean, these kids who can do graphic design and make you a website and name every fish species and (laughs) make an Excel spreadsheet and create you a database and, like, write a blog about it in, like, a day.
0: (laughs) I know. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. So
1: um, I think this, just like all these other fields, ocean conservation and conservation work more broadly has a lot of work to do to figure out how to incorporate this next generation diversity of skill sets um, into the existing organizations. I mean, a lot of people are coming into this work and are sort of like tracked into like very specific tasks. And that's just not the way the next, this like up and coming generation works. That's not the way they see the world and um, interact with, you know, projects and being productive. So, um, just, just like, you know, all fields are having this moment of transition, but it is really exciting to be a part of, um, seeing so many new people come in inspired with new ideas to, to bring to bear.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just, I can keep going on this track, but I'm just thinking of another, <laughs> of other questions. Mm-hmm. um, What's been your biggest challenge then on a personal level in your your career and your career path? Hmm.
1: Um, I don't know. I'm I'm reminded also of your earlier question that I didn't answer about what does it feel like to be the only one in the room? Hmm. Um, I mean, because I have more often than not perhaps been the only woman of color, only black woman in the room. Um, And definitely having to speak for broader communities than I necessarily feel comfortable speaking for. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, I can, I'm definitely comfortable saying we need to think about people of color, communities of color, coastal communities, poor communities, women, um, a solution that doesn't work for these people is not a real solution. Um, so, I've gotten more and more comfortable speaking up about that. But it's kind of a bummer to have to always be the one speaking up about that. Yes. And I walked into a workshop a few weeks ago and was like, this is a workshop for like how to build a strategy to save coral reefs around the world. And I'm the only person of color in this room. You realize like who's living on most of the coasts of these coral reefs. There and I don't I don't even live there like where's the geographic diversity let alone racial diversity mm-hmm. um, so there's a long way to go and I think it's kind of a pain sometimes to have to always you know be be the person that beats that drum but I mean I have the privilege of being in these rooms and so of course I'm going to do it right um, and the the question is you know how do you do that without like not being invited back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're in an interesting moment where people realize like when I speak up and say these things, they're like, Oh man, we really botched that one. And it's, n- there's, there's an initial like defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is a realization that like, they need people like me to be part of the conversation. Nice. Um, and so, there's there's a there's a little bit of a challenge there too because like I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be invited to all of these spaces because they can't think of anybody else. Yes. So I'm always trying to bring more people into the conversation, mentor the next generation, identify talent, mm-hmm. um, and be a part of, you know, shifting the demographics for if for no other reason that it will help us solve these problems better to have more ideas and perspectives at the table. But honestly, that hasn't really been a challenge for me personally. I mean, I'm so privileged. I grew up in a home that my parents owned. I went to private school my whole life. We didn't have a lot of money. We were basically, um, you know, I was raised on the salary of a public school teacher in New Mm -hmm. York city and we all know teachers are woefully underpaid right. for the, the value that they bring to society. Um, and my dad um, is a black Jamaican man who really struggled with starting his own architecture firm. That is like one of the most insular and historically racist fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and, and and going to Harvard and getting a PhD and working in philanthropy and, and having through work in philanthropy, I mean, I'm so grateful to Ted Wade and and his foundation for giving me those opportunities because when you work in philanthropy, all doors are open to you, right? Like everyone yes. wants to be your friend. I was getting chased down the hallways at <laughs> conferences where people who wanted to pitch me their ideas, and it's terrifying, like being, you know, 30 years old and and people feeling like you're this gatekeeper. But it also was an amazing opportunity to built like a very strong and broad and deep network in this field that would have taken me way longer otherwise. So I think, I mean, if I could think of challenges, but really I've just had to put in the work Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's been a lot of serendipity around being in the right place in the right time and being prepared for those opportunities um, and just you know, having people willing to take the time to mentor me, which is um, you know some a, a favor that I'm making a very deliberate effort to to pay it forward on that. Um, but I guess my biggest challenge, I I the answer that comes to mind right now is a total cop-out, which is there's so much work to do. It's really hard to figure out how to spend my time. Mm. And I feel, like, stretched incredibly thin because there's um, there are a lot of demands on my time. And a lot of them are people who can't afford to pay me. And as an independent consultant, that's, like, a really tricky <laughs> situation to be in. It's like, I want to do all this public speaking and speak on panels and do all this mentoring and, and help you figure out how to diversify your organization and, and your event programming and, and come up with all of these strategic ideas. But, like, I can't afford to spend all my time on that because I have to pay my rent, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and there's also so many projects that I want to do, um, paid or unpaid, that um, it really is I guess the biggest challenge is triage. Like we're in a moment in time where there's so much that needs to be done. There's so little time to do it because things are going downhill so fast in terms of the environment. I mean, I spent last month calculating how much plastic goes into the ocean. We're putting a ton of plastic into the global ocean every four seconds, a ton every four seconds and so i mean you think about these numbers like coral reefs could be gone as we know it by 2050 we're dumping a ton of plastic into the ocean every 4 seconds like like the, oh the loss of species and like the collapse of fisheries and all of it it's just like what are we like what is the what do i really need to be doing yeah,
0: exactly. with every
1: second of my day like to keep you know, to, to help make a difference in solving these problems. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, it's a really big challenge because I think a lot of sort of like human nature is this tendency to like do what's easy or do what we're good at or, or, you know, do what we can get paid for or do what brings us the most joy. Um, and right now I'm, I'm thinking a lot about like, okay, what skills do I have and what problems most need to be solved? Mm-hmm. And what is that And like, what what can I get paid for? And like, what is that Venn diagram between making a living, using my skills and solving the most critical problems? It's really like a triage situation at this point. And so I think that is my biggest challenge is like, how do I actually spend the, the, the finite amount of minutes that I have on something that is useful and important?
0: Yeah, the scale is so big.
1: Yeah, I mean, oh. even saying that out loud just like scared me. <laughs> <laughs> when you, said I'm those still biggest... not immune to this stuff, oh, right? Like, and... it's terrifying that we yeah. are able to have this big of an impact on our planet, and like how yeah. little we even understand about what's happening. I mean, exactly. we have. We have plastic in our sea salt, our table salt. We have plastic in our drinking water. We have plastic getting into the food chain because it's all these microplastics, right? Right. We have plastic that's getting um, into the rivers and into the ocean because every time we wash our clothes that are made of plastics, like synthetic fibers, some of those fibers end up in in our ecosystem. It's just like
0: mind-blowing how
1: thoroughly we've been able – to change the planet and so
0: 50 years isn't a long time when you talk about the the, the coral reefs disappearing in 50 it's not 50 years.
1: years it's 2050 like it's already oh it's 2050 <laughs> yeah oh I we don't even 50. have we have like oh. 32 years <laughs> so it, I mean it, I think some of these things it's like oh I just want to like watch netflix and you eat just popcorn wanna, and exactly. drink wine and be like forget about it just, just get like, your have an awesome motown dance party and like <laughs> just forget about it and so i mean this is the same thing we're talking about in the social justice movement like yeah. what does yeah. self-care look like when you're working on problems that right. seem so like apocalyptic yeah. in in these life or death scenarios because right. i mean hurricanes and storms and being stronger because of climate is a life or death situation in the same way that, um, you know, police violence against communities of color is a life or death situation. Um, Access to safe drinking water and healthy food um, is a life or death situation Um, in the same way that, you know, when we think about water quality in Flint and Flint, Michigan is only one of hundreds of cities with drinking water that bad in the U S alone. Um, Mm. and that of course ends up in everyone drinking bottled water, which results in this like massive plastics problem that we're experiencing. So it's like really all connected, um, in all of these crazy ways. And when I think about seafood, like fish should be one of the healthiest things you could possibly eat. And yet we've contaminated the oceans so that it's not whether that's like mercury and women have to worry about like not eating too much Mm -hmm. seafood because they don't want their babies to be born with brain damage or just like eating plastics and having like, who even knows what that's doing to us in terms of um, hormones and our endocrine systems and Mm -hmm. cancer and all that stuff. And if you add on top of that, obviously like the environmental impacts Um, for example, in Thailand, they've, they've, bulldozed a lot of the coastal mangroves to put in farms where they grow shrimp in these ponds along the coast. Mm. Um, and that's obviously really can be an environmental impact. You've destroyed the ecosystem Mm -hmm. and mangroves are what filter, um, the runoff of, of water from land into the sea. So you're losing your natural filtration system. It's also the habitat for all the baby fish that then grow up to be the big fish that we need to eat. So you're impacting food security. Um, and, and when tsunamis come, places without that storm protection, that buffer from the wind and the waves are much more deeply impacted. So I think a lot of the work that I'm doing at this point is giving people other ways to think about these problems mm. um, and really highlighting what's working. There's like tons of people doing brilliant work on solutions that are effective that we need to be replicating and scaling. Um, so I love to shine a light on that stuff. On the trash part of it, there's a super simple solution, which is like a water wheel like one of these huge wheels that you used to see on like tugboats on the Mississippi river. Yeah. Um, these wheels that are just spun by the currents um, at the mouths of rivers. And in these wheels, each sort of like spoke of the wheel picks up any floating debris as it goes. Um, and the wheel um, right behind it has a dumpster. And so it's just all the trash that's floating down the river Powered by this current ends up in the dumpster and then the dumpster gets filled up and you can take it away to a landfill. Um, It's super low tech, but this is a way to prevent a lot of that plastic from getting into the ocean. And Baltimore has two of these, I think, Mr. Trash Wheel and Professor Trash Wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They have social media accounts. You can follow them on Twitter. That's
0: Um, so
1: simple. It's so simple. Every river should have one of these sort of booms. There's these like, uh, floating uh, booms that funnel the debris into this wheel that and then goes into this dumpster that can be taken away. Um, that should be a much more widely deployed solution. And, and there are efforts now to scale that work. But that kind of thing, I mean, I don't think people um, are aware of all of these solutions. I mean, part of my PhD research was redesigning fish traps so that the baby fish and the Ornamental species, people didn't even want to eat, could get out, and that's so simple. It's just putting a slot like the size of a videotape. I know I'm like aging myself, like (laughs) (laughs) in the corner of these traps, and then like the skinny fish and the ornamental fish get out, and like the big groupers and snappers stay in there. And fishermen don't lose any money, and you've like helped the next generation of fish get to grow up before they get caught. So, I mean, I think there are tons and tons of solutions Um, that we all need to become more aware of um, and work on implementing. And um, I just want to give a shout out to Nancy Knowlton at the Smithsonian who organized with her team the Earth Optimism Conference, which grew out of her ocean optimism work, Mm -hmm. which is really focusing on highlighting all of these conservation solutions, shining a light on what's working, instead of just letting us get depressed and bogged down in like, all of the scary statistics that we can rattle off, and instead thinking about like, okay, like, who who who's in? Who wants to work with me on on all of these solutions? What other solutions can we invent?
0: That is so great. I'm so I'm so glad you said that because while <laughs> you were speaking, Earth optimism. oh gosh, you know I was thinking, optimism, how you do you find stay motivated? Out all this
1: stuff. It's Fabulous. some days it's harder than others, but yeah, there's tons of beautiful, elegant, inspiring Fabulous. work happening all over the world.
0: I love that Earth Optimism Conference, you know. So is that anyone can attend? Or do you have um, to be yeah,
1: they had one. Um, there has only been one so far. It mm-hmm. was in D.C. this year. Um, and I had the pleasure of giving one of the keynotes and use that as an opportunity to say, to talk about the social justice connection, to talk about the need for all of these solutions to be including poor communities mm-hmm. and communities of color um which was great to be able to bring that uh, additional dimension into that room so the the speeches from that are are available online i think mm-hmm. through the Smithsonian um they're on youtube and the ocean portal that the smithsonian has they have a website that has documented a lot of the ocean specific work um but yeah just check out the hashtags earth optimism and ocean optimism and you'll find all sorts of things that will give you hope and one of the things that I would love to see and and to support and actually work on is making sure that the funding and the support is not just going to the large NGOs. Mm -hmm. They're doing some good work, but there's a lot of individuals and small groups that are doing really brilliant and important work. And I want to make sure that they're getting supported and that their ideas are getting heard and adopted and spread. Um, so one of the, um, uh, things that I would love to build out in my consulting practice is working with philanthropists, especially those who are new to ocean conservation space Mm -hmm. and helping them figure out how to um, donate and invest their money most effectively. Like what are the groups doing interesting stuff that's aligned with, you know, this philanthropist's interests and values, but are really making a difference that they maybe didn't know about because you can't just Google how do I spend money to save the ocean? Like right. you need, <laughs> you need some help navigating this space, and so that's one of the services that I'm really excited to be building out with my team at the Ocean Collective.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I if someone wanted to get in hold of you, get in contact. This is so inspiring. I mean, we can. <laughs> I, I really, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad we're also moved to a place where we can see some motivation. Cause I was like, oh my mm-hmm. God, it feels so big. But now I'm feeling it like did. it's really inspiring to see some way you can start to plug in, make a difference. Yeah. And so if someone wanted to get, get in contact with you, if there's someone who's, who's child or who themselves are like interested in this area, mm-hmm. wanting to find out more, how would they get hold of you?
1: Sure. So um, I blog a lot for National Geographic. I've done, I think, 50 posts for them over the past few years. Mm-hmm. So if, basically, like, there there aren't a lot of people named Ayana who do ocean work. <laughs> so I think if you That's just right. Google Ayana and ocean, you'll find, you'll find tons of stuff about me. But um, in particular, I blog on National Geographic's Ocean Views blog and on Scientific American's blog. Um, I have a YouTube playlist of all of my public speaking want to hear, for mm-hmm. example, that keynote from the Earth Optimism Conference. That's there. Um, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is like, uh, I think I'm the only, maybe the only one with a, um, an online presence with that name. Mm-hmm. Um, my website for um, the company, um, the consulting firm that I founded and run is Ocean Collective dot co and that's ocean collective without an e at the end because ocean collective with an e at the end is the heavy metal band in australia <laughs> <laughs> um, but i really liked the name so i just cut the e off um and we are on instagram and twitter i'm on twitter as ayana eliza um and on instagram as ayana elizabeth um and I, I try to do a pretty good job of sharing what I'm working on in real time, um, and where, where I'm speaking and what I'm reading.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so yeah, you can find me at all of those places.
0: Great. I'm going to put links in the show notes. Um, so, That'd be great. And then I'm also going to I'm also going to link to the Earth Optimism Conference as well. You Please know, do. I want to link put a link to that. And um, we all
1: need these stories to keep oh, us going. And yay and inspire us for and sure
0: and gives us ideas and, and you never know who knows who you know mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, to be passing on this information this we need to be we need to we need to do more as a community we need to get involved more and we need to be encouraging the next generation to to take a look because the wider institutions as you said may not be equipped to guide our young people in that direction so hmm Ayana, it's been so wonderful, and I didn't even get to like. <laughs> I didn't even get to the whole like, you know, I've I've left behind the Hurricane Maria thing just because it was really a per- there was a personal drive behind that. That might yeah. be another conversation in the future.
1: I can say quickly. I mean, hurricanes. This hurricane season was off the charts, and so I mean, I hope that it's a wake up call about the the ways that climate change is strengthening storms and the severity of the impact on communities. I mean, so how many, what percent of Puerto Rico still doesn't have power? And that's like a major Island and city and part Mm -hmm. of the United States and the Virgin islands and Dominica and Barbuda. Um, and the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Barbuda, where I worked for three years, I mean, that place has such a big space in my heart and I am I'm really um, feeling for for that community in particular right now. And so there's a hard conversation that we need to have about rebuilding, too. Yes. I mean, where and how should we be rebuilding? Because these things are going to keep happening. So we need to be a bit more strategic about it. And really think about um, culture in part of that, in all of this. I guess I could end on that point. I think there's no way to solve these problems to... Um, support communities to to do good science, to have your voice heard effectively, to communicate well, to do policy change that's useful without thinking about the cultural context within which all of this is happening. Um, because we have relationships with the ocean as individuals, as cultures, as communities, mm. as you know. Professionals, and and that needs to be a part of the conversation, not in like a touchy feely hippie zen way, but in a in a real way. Like we have a connection to the sea, nice. um, we depend on it for our livelihoods and for our health and well being and our food, um, and so we need to make sure that that um, relationship stays healthy, so that our our culture can stay vibrant so um i'm hoping that people think a little bit more about culture when we think about um how to do conservation work going
0: forward yeah oh ayanna thank you so much thank you it's been rich it's been thought-provoking it's been moving it's been upsetting
1: (laughs) thought-provoking for me too just being asked these questions is so important
0: Wow. Wow. I appreciate you. You know, there was so much there, you know, maybe next year I'd love to have you back on the show because I didn't, there was half, I didn't even get to half (laughs) of my (laughs) question.
1: I would be happy to.
0: And that brings us to the end of another inspiring episode of She's Got Drive. I hope you enjoy the conversation that we just, that we had. It may be, a conversation from the vault, but it's still so relevant. And if anything, sadly, when we think about the time when we recorded that interview and where we are right now, boy, we really are doing things, you know, that is not helpful to the planet. It's really feeling ever, ever more urgent and uh, the climate crisis. So... I'm going to suggest, one of the things I'm going to suggest is you head to website ayanaelizabeth.com and on that website she references the climate action Venn diagram because ultimately we all have, and she has a TED talk, we all have a role to play in finding solutions to the climate crisis. So what's ours and how do we do that? How do we take climate action? Head over to her website and then absolutely, absolutely, absolutely listen to that TED talk. And then also use her tool to help you figure out what's your contribution to this really important moment in in all of our lives to make a difference. If you are enjoying the show, if you are getting any value from the show, if you leave with some insights and inspiration, please head over to iTunes and rate and review the show. If you, are, if you know anyone in your life who would benefit from She's Got Drive podcast, then please think about those two, three people and share the show immediately and say to them, listen... I'm listening to the She's Got Drive podcast and I'm sure you'd get a lot out of it. Listen to this episode. It was, this is what I got. So if you could do that as well, it helps us expand and grow the show. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Valtellina. The music is by the wonderful Satoria Key. Back to Me is the song. You can download that song from She's Got Drive podcast. She'sGotDrive.com. Remember, together we can build a community of empowered women who are living their best lives and unleashing their drive. So keep driving towards your dreams. Until next time, go well and stay well.